RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. A jump in volatility whipsaws U.S. equities. Oil dips below $45 a barrel for the first time since April 2009. And the World Bank cuts global growth to 3%, with the U.S. as the lone bright spot. And see why Lung stirs up a hornet's nest in advance of his policy address later this morning. Today on Money for Nothing, Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide will share his thoughts about Chief Executive C.Y. Lung's 2015 policy address, scheduled for 11 a.m. today. Alex Frangos of the Wall Street Journal will weigh in on that discussion. And in our industry segment, Philippa Allen of Compliance Asia will talk about regulatory issues facing the fund management industry. Stuart Alcroft of City Investor Services joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. Big Wednesday, huh, with the policy address? Yes, it's Big Wednesday, and um, I suppose, have we got a lot to look forward to? I think we have to wait and see, don't we? Well, it's certainly starting off with its own fair share of drama. Yeah, I think so. So let's take a look at uh, today's top story. Is A a report from the U.S. Labor Department says that job openings have risen almost 3% in November. Now, that's the highest level since January 2001. Rita Foley from the Associated Press has more. So many jobs opened in the past year that one economist calls it spectacular. Employers advertised more jobs in November than in nearly 14 years, almost 5 million. So it appears that businesses are determined to add employees, feeling confident enough that the economy will continue to grow and create more demand for their goods and services. The bad news? Our paychecks are still stuck where they are. But the analysts say if the jobs keep opening up at this rate, that may change. The West Texas Intermediate Oil Index dipped below the $45 mark before settling in the $46 range. Brent crude oil is now at par uh, at uh, $46.59. The slump in oil prices has revealed the exposure that banks have to the industry. Here's Isaac Amsdorf of Bloomberg. This has been a key growth industry in the U.S., and it's very capital intensive, so there's a lot of funding that was required, and banks have stepped up to that. Um, and so both that's both in direct commercial lending to the producers. Mm-hmm. It's in arranging a, a uh, share, share sales. and, and now the, But the banks um, have the first cut, um, and they're, they're pretty conservative on that. They take the, the proved reserves, the best assets that the companies have, as collateral. So they uh, have something to back it up. Um, So the companies are probably going to try to arrange some kind of emergency refinancing bridge loans with private capital, uh, like private equity companies. But Jonathan Medved, CEO of Our Crowd, doesn't agree. I just don't see the iBanks failing because of lack of uh, income from uh, oil deals. Okay, In other words, I think that there will be other deals to replace that. I'm, I'm surprised at how the markets are reacting and people are talking about the drop in oil prices. People should be celebrating. There should be rallies in the street and, and ticker tape parades. The bottom line is that oil prices are volatile. 
we should enjoy it while it lasts, okay? To, to say that this is going to be the long-term normal, who knows, okay? But the reality is it's great news while it's here. It's got some casualties, which are alternative energy companies and green energy. The green energy index is down now 36% off of its uh, highs uh, since last March. You know, that's sad, but, okay, that's the price you pay for having more money in the consumer hands. Yeah, that and the fact that you aren't going to see the investment necessarily in shale. Wall Street stocks are closed modestly lower as worries about the sliding crude oil prices unsettled investors. The Dow fell 27 points to 17,613. The S&P 500 also dropped a fifth of a percent to 2023, while the Nasdaq, <clears throat> excuse me, edged three points down to 4,661. Art Cashin of UBS says that the market movements just signal more volatility. It, it, it sets up an opportunity for further correction, unfortunately. I mean, you had what looked on paper to be a terrific rally. I mean, those of us who saw what was happening knew it was hollow. But on paper, it looked great and it entirely disappeared and went negative. That's not usually a good sign for the coming trading. The World Bank has lowered its global growth forecast for 2015 and for next year, blaming disappointing economic prospects in the Eurozone, Japan and some major emerging economies that are offsetting the benefit of lower oil prices. It's predicting that the global economy will grow 3% this year, down from an earlier forecast of 3.4% made in June. And it said that the world GDP growth would reach 3.3% in 2016 as opposed to the June forecast of 3.5% before dipping to 3.2% in 2017. Well, Stuart, what do you think? I mean, we've got dismal figures all around from the World Bank. Uh, You've got volatility in the markets. Is that the name of the game just this morning or for the remainder of the I think volatility is quite good at the moment. Um, I think we need to have a bit of volatility. There's been a a strong run-up over the last um, quite more than a year now for the U.S. market. And um, a bit of correction is quite uh, healthy. Um, The underlying is that the U.S. economy is still doing very well. If you can see, um, you know, the number of job openings rising, as we we have seen, the number of um, unemployed falling, as we've seen, these would suggest that the economy is doing pretty well. And I think we, we, we just need to see that feed through to better corporate numbers and then we'll start to see a resumption of a, a, a more positive trend on the markets, in my view. So, uh, sounds like you're saying maybe it's not a whole lot to worry about, but certainly in China, I mean, the corporate numbers uh, are not at par with the rally that we have seen. No, China is obviously slowing down and there are quite a few things that are going on there. Um, whether it's going to have a soft or a hard landing still remains uh, uh, the uncertainty and there are plenty of people who are willing to debate both arguments. Um, China still has around 7% annual growth which is still better than anywhere else in the world in, 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 among many major economies. Uh, the only thing is that China needs to have 7% annual growth just to keep things going on track. And, and, and so if it falls too much below that figure, 
I, I think um, that will cause more worries. But I don't feel that China is off track either. I think I think it's going to just be a bit more stable, perhaps, than, than, than maybe has been the case in the past. All right. Well, we had uh, China trade data out yesterday, and official figures show that uh, exports surged uh, faster than expected uh, at 9.7% in December. But the trade for the whole of 2014 failed to meet the government's annual growth target. Let's hear from Cecil Wong. The December performance made exports one of the few bright spots in 2014 amid a slowing mainland economy. Stronger demand from the U.S., Europe and Southeast Asia last month helped boost exports. Cargo shipments to Japan declined, though, partly driven by a 20% appreciation of the yuan against the weakening yen since July. The 9.7% rise in December from a year ago accelerated from the 4.7% increase in November and was above market forecasts. On the import side, trade contracted 2.4% in December from a year earlier. But the fall wasn't as steep as the 6.7% decline in November. For all of 2014, exports rose 6.1%, down from an increase of 7.9% in 2013. Imports rose 0.4% year-over-year after a rise of 7.3% in 2013. The annual figures all came below the government's target of 7.5% trade growth. China's trade surplus came in at 382 billion U.S. dollars in 2014, compared with a surplus of 260 billion U.S. dollars the previous year. What do you think, Stuart? China is all over the place. <laughs> I mean, we're seeing this to say um, the least. Yes, but but no, China's okay. I mean, we you know, you, the, as I said before, it needs a it needs to keep a high GDP of around seven. It's got around seven, maybe a plus or minus of one uh, percent, depending on what you believe. But so long as it stays in that area, that's good. Um, now the markets are what people look at and focus on because they're the, they're the easy bit. That's where individuals can make some money or not. And uh, you are beginning to see um, a bit more of a positive trend. We've seen a very strong rise in the Shanghai exchange over the last uh, – uh, or the index of the exchange over the last six months. And so, again, a, a slight correction of that is always going to be a healthy sign rather than a negative sign. All right. And looking at the markets this morning, the Nikkei is down 89 89- points. That's uh, just about half a percent to 16,998. Australia's ASX index is also down a quarter of a percent to 5,368. And Seoul's Kospi is up a quarter of a percent to 1,922. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.17 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 117 yen. And the pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 76 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about the policy address right after this. With the opening of Kennedy Town Station and HKU Station on the MTR Island Line in late December 2014, the feeder bus and green minibus services connecting to the new railway have been strengthened. The Transport Department has published booklets to provide information on the public transport services as well as the new transport facilities in the vicinity. For more details, please visit the Transport Department and Public Transport Operators' websites.
The time is 8.14 a.m. and Chief Executive C.Y. Lung is about to deliver his third policy address later this morning. In it, he's expected to unveil a basket of new initiatives to boost housing supply and the prospects for young people. We're joined now by uh, Mark Michelson. He is a senior counsellor at APCO Worldwide. He joins us on the phone. Uh, good morning, Mark. Morning, Renita. And we're also joined by Alex Frangos, who is the editor of the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. He joins us uh, from the studio. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. So, uh, Mark, if I could put this out to you first. Um, This is the first uh, policy address in the aftermath of more than two months of street protests, uh, you know, Occupy Central last year. What are you expecting? Well, you're going to hear this most of the day, I guess. It seems that all the signals being sent that housing is going to be a big focus and with young people in, in the middle of that, of course, the income gap that we see, um, we've seen in Hong Kong for some time, but, but, but trying to deal with those, uh, education, health, and all those areas. But, but I'm also interested in sort of the subtle side of this, because what kind of impact did this have on, on businesses, especially in my case, the ones I deal with more are international businesses, those that use Hong Kong as the base. Did... Um, did occupy and and this Hong Kong's position have still have the appeal? You know, still have the the what kind of what kind of effect is it having? And are companies still going to come here? Or are we going to stay here? And what are your thoughts on that? Uh, companies beginning to sort of distrust the whole situation here? Well, I don't think so. Not yet, for sure. You know, I, I one of the things I do is I chair a group of uh, of of. Uh, regional heads of multinational companies based in Hong Kong. We have about 70 or 80 of them uh, based in Hong Kong. And most of them, frankly, if we had the chief executive of Hong Kong or the financial secretary for as a guest, I say somewhat facetiously, not many would show up at that meeting, not because they don't like them one way or the other, but because they don't spend much time at Hong Kong. Hong Kong just has to work. It has to be a, a place where they can, they can easily live and work easily, go through the airport, do all those sorts of things they have to do, have minimal uh, interaction with government except to uh, support them, you know, have, have good regulations, rule of law, free flow of information. And you can see that every year since the statistics uh, department of the Hong Kong government takes a survey as part of, of counting the number of, of companies from outside regional headquarters and regional offices that are in Hong Kong, and they ask what are the most important factors for Hong Kong. Of course, tax is number one, as you suggest. But number two is free flow of information. Absolutely. Alex, uh, we'd love to bring uh, you in on this. What what are your thoughts on the issue? What are you expecting? Well, I mean, I think we're expecting more of what we've already seen from the previous policy addresses, which is a a, heavy emphasis on housing. Um, which is a problem that can't be solved in a policy address and can't be solved in, you know, one year or two years. Um, you know, there's also meant to be a, a big emphasis on on, on youth and uh, you know providing more opportunity. But it, it, it you know, I think Cy Long is um, not exactly the most popular figure in Hong Kong among youth, and it strikes me as one of those kind of uh, you know attempts to you know where your 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 the school principal tries to be your best friend. You just don't want to, um, and you know, all these whatever goodies that put out in terms of 
you know, uh, homeownership scheme uh, or, you know, new towns in the new territories and, and things like that, uh, you know, I think there's an element of, you know, you can't buy me love. I mean, people mm. people aren't looking for hand- <clears throat> for handouts. They're looking for um, something different. And that's, you know, the, the issue here, you know, what Mark was talking about, I, I, I agree. I don't know that, that companies are sitting around saying, oh, we need to leave Hong Kong because of, you know, Occupy, um, and it certainly wasn't reflected in the stock market and wasn't reflected in the GDP figures that Occupy had a, you know, terribly strong impact on, on either. Uh, but there is a kind of a slow, long burn issue for Hong Kong, you know, which is, is it, is it going to be a, a kind of place where, you know, young people feel that there's opportunity and that they want to stay. And, and I don't know that the policy address is going to fix that. Yeah, I think uh, both of your comments are spot on. There does appear to be this issue of trust. Now, Mark has pointed out that it's it's not like companies are suddenly distrusting Hong Kong. But uh, amongst the people of Hong Kong, certainly the youth, uh, the youth, excuse me, there does seem to be this issue of a distrust, mistrust. You know, we don't necessarily trust uh, what he's going to say or is he going to stick to his words? Now, what do you make of these accusations that are floating around against um, uh, the Occupy founder, Benny, Benny Tai, as to accepting foreign funding and um, whether this raises a national security concern? Uh, C.Y. Lung is accusing him of this. The question is, is this simply a tactic to deflect from the real issues at hand? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't really comment on the specifics of the, the politics involved, but I would note that you know, all this foreign, you know, talk of foreign influence is, is somewhat ironic considering what an international place Hong Kong is and, and how much it prides itself on being a place that welcomes foreigners, um, uh, including myself, uh, and also how much Hong Kong people value sending their children abroad to be educated in these countries that are supposedly meddling in Hong Kong's affairs. So uh, it's a, it's an extremely, uh, you know, squishy situation. So um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, how the public would react to those sorts of things. Mark, what's yeah, your take I, I on that? Agree, I agree yeah. with, of course, I agree with what Alex says, but of course, maybe I would say that. But at, at the same time, in, I, I teach at one of the universities, and in talking to some of the young people there, they clearly you know, the ones that I talk to at least, clearly believe in some of the issues that have been raised. They may not necessarily go to the street. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But they believe in those. And I don't, I didn't perceive at least they were being, you know, uh, guided by anyone from the outside. I have no idea about any of the, uh, about any of the specifics that are, that are going on. But it seems a lot of this is being driven by, you know, within Hong Kong. Stuart here, uh, Mark. One of the things that I think we're seeing and, and, and hoping to see in the policy address will be ways in which to alleviate the poverty and the very big uh, split between the haves and have-nots in Hong Kong. Do you think there'll be any opportunity for that? If, will, will that occur? Uh, you, know, I, I, it's been, you know, to be fair, it's been an issue for CY Lung for many years. It's very hard to do that. You know, you can throw a little money in that direction, but really what you want is a sustainable program. If he can, if he can begin to outline, outline some of the measures that he might take going forward, yes, but what he really is going to need to do, I think given the political situation, and I'm not a specialist, you'll have others later on that can focus on this, is to, uh, is to have something that's going to appeal to, to people that are not just you know, regular sort of supporters of, of the kind of policy he's taken. Financial insecurity, I think, is is the number one issue for people around the world. So, so it's not just in Hong Kong. It's 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 all over the place. It clearly is a is a big problem. But certainly, it's something that 
it's very hard to defend in, in one of the richest economies in the world where you have some uh, quite a lot of people who can yeah. barely make it, uh, ends meet. Mm, yeah, sure. And Alex, what about, um, you know, the, the other thing that I think a lot of businesses find is things don't get done at the, because it's beginning to be too much bureaucracy. Is that something that can be changed? Uh, certainly could be. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know that it is at the top of the list of things um, that the policy addresser is going to look at and... Um, uh, you know, Hong Kong, I think, is still known, at least relatively, as being a, a pretty easy place to do business, to open a business, start a business, uh, you know, open a bank account and um, get things done. Uh, but the uh, um, uh, it, it, I think that the bigger issue, and I think Mark identified it before, is the, the issue of free flow of information and rule of law and you know, we're, are we going to hear about that in the policy address? Those, those are the kind of core core values of Hong Kong, I think, that attract businesses, both international businesses, Chinese businesses, local businesses, mm-hmm. to develop and flourish here. Yeah. Okay, let, me, let me just briefly follow this up. Yeah, I agree with, with both of those, those points, and I, I think it's important. But on the, on the day-to-day situation, it probably is a little harder for someone who deals a lot in in government relations, it is a little harder to get things done in Hong Kong. It is still relatively easier than a lot of other places. But part of that has to do with not that civil servants aren't, aren't good, because many of them are, are of high quality in Hong Kong. They're just looking what the political atmosphere is, and they're, they actually fear doing anything because they're afraid they'll, uh, they'll do the wrong thing. Even if it's not a major major matter. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide, (laughs) joining us by phone. And Alex Frangos, who is the Asia editor of the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street. Thank you so much, uh, Alex. Well, equities research put out by investment banks and boutique fund houses can raise important issues for investors. The question is, should you trust the printed word? What about instances involving short sellers such as U.S. firms like Muddy Waters? What do you think, Stuart? Well, clearly this is something that is beginning to cause a bit of concern in Hong Kong. And uh, I have with me here Philippa Allen, who's the uh, CEO of Compliance Asia. Philip has been in Hong Kong for almost as long as me Um, (laughs) and and been right at the forefront of of the compliance regime for the securities industry. So, um, you know, having seen what's been going on, I thought probably quite interesting, Philippa, if you could uh, give us a, uh, a couple of thoughts here. Um, you know, first, let's start by asking, should readers believe in online investment reports? Right. It was interesting. We're talking about free flow of information here. Um, I think the retail investors are being driven towards these types of online reports because of the lack of access they have to the investment banking style of research, which is very much designed now for large institutional investors. They pay the commission, therefore they get their research. Uh, So for an online investor trying to make an investment decision, they're looking for alternative ways to find out information. Um, And obviously these guys are high profile. You know, you go to the web and you see great things. The Motley Fool is a great example, Muddy Waters and so on. They do have conflicts. You know, there are some inherent conflicts. Mm. They're still trying to sell you something. Do they declare them sufficiently well? Well, if you look at the Motley Fool, they do. You know, there's a lot there around we've got an asset management business, we've got an investment business. Groups (coughs) like Muddy Waters in this latest SFC case that they've bought, the Citron case, 
you know, they do have a conflict, and I've got some some sympathy with the regulators. They are trying to short sell into the market. So are they producing these wild accusations in order to drive the price down and but take But short selling is not illegal, is it? It's not illegal. That's true. You've got to just prove that there is, um, you know, you've got to follow the rules, obviously. But if there's an intent to manipulate... You go into a different territory, but that but that's widely allowed in the U.S., isn't it? But it's just that in Hong Kong, it's generally not accepted. Right. Well, Asia generally still has issues with mm. short selling. Um, I think the more problematic case the SFC's board is this recent one against Moody's. There's mm. still not a lot out there in the public space about it. But if you go back and read the original report about 2011, they released. Um, you know, they were talking about sensible things about Chinese listed companies, weak corporate governance opaque business models, uh, very family-controlled, you know, high growth, etc., and identifying, you know, these as problems that investors should be looking at. And isn't that the role of Moody's as a rating agency to identify what the issues are? Exactly. So why is it wrong? Exactly. I mean, there may be one or two errors in this very long report. It's over 60 pages if anybody's interested. But I don't think that uh, it seems to a stretch to be able to get to the point that saying suddenly you've got false and misleading information that's worthy of a $23 million fine, which is what the mm. SFC is proposing. And, and it was of H shares, was that? Right, exactly. So, so these are China companies listed in Hong Kong. So, again, why would uh, the SFC want to be involved in something like that? Well, clearly it brings into play the quality of the listings in Hong Kong, with his, which the SFC is involved in the process of approving. The problem optically, of course, and the question is already being raised, is there some sort of pressure being applied to them from the mainland? Uh, Philippa, you know, what recourse does the retail investor have? I mean, the retail investor really needs to understand companies uh, before you know, you're going to go and invest in their stocks. And since, as you say, said right at the beginning of the segment, you know, we don't have access to the research that investment banks put out. Uh, where else could we possibly look? I agree. It's a problem. It's clear that the regulators would like to drive retail investors towards having to take paid-for advice from stockbrokers. There's a lot of resistance to that in Hong Kong. People don't want to pay for it, and they feel they can make their own investment decisions. Um, unfortunately, there's still a little bit of the trading mentality and not so much of the fundamental research mentality. I think, you know, unless you're a really high net worth individual, you're not just not getting that access. So, but it's so easy to publish on the net anyway, isn't yeah. it? So anyone yeah. can put out anything. But can that? But are we seeing any signs that the regulators are cracking down on some of these very small outlets? Not unless they go into the route of, you know, of potentially taking trades or mm. genuinely making truly false statements. I mean, it's a buyer beware situation. Clearly, if you're going online to look for research, take care in what you're looking at and apply some common sense to it. Good. Thank you. Okay. Very, very interesting stuff. And I think we've got to get you back uh, for more, Philippa, because this is just re- right up the alley of our listeners and, you know, what they need to know and learn. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, that is Philippa Allen. She is a CEO of Compliance Asia. Well, here we are uh, already at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down 112 points to 16,975. And uh, Australia's ASX index is a down just slightly, just one point to 5,380. And Seoul's Kospi up six points to 1,000. <clears throat> 
923. So, Stuart, we've got the policy address at 11 o'clock this morning. What else do we need to keep our eyes on? Oil price. Um, you asked me last week what I thought the floor would be. I said $40. It seems as though that could still be true. Uh, I'm surprised that I'm, I might be even be right here. You might even be right. <laughs> Which is why we have you join us every Wednesday. And it's so enjoyable. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, if you would like to put questions specifically to Stuart, please do so on our Facebook page, which once again is Money for Nothing at RTHK Radio 3. That's facebook.com forward slash Money for Nothing at RTHK Radio 3. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart for today. It will be fine with a cold, cold morning, dry during the day and a maximum temperature of about 17 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 10 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 76%. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off for Money for Nothing. And now it's time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. A group of finance professionals who supported the Occupy Central civil disobedience movement says it received a five-figure sum of money from a Communist Party member who's a Hong Kong resident. Edward Chin, the organiser of 2047 Hong Kong Finance Monitor, was responding to allegations by the chief executive, CY Leung, of foreign cash funding the movement. There is a one-party member who donates a five-digit amount of Hong Kong dollars, not even what I call uh, they want to hatch the risk, but uh, anyone honestly, even party members, if they have received like a Hong Kong three-star ID, if they lived in mainland before, they see the difference and then they will somehow support a government that, um, or, or they want a government to have a true democracy. So at that time, we, we do receive some funding from someone who is a party background. That is a high five digit. Yesterday, the chief executive said Professor Benny Tai from Occupy Central had received three installments totaling $1.3 million since he announced the pro-democracy sit-in campaign. Professor Tai described Mr Leung's allegation as a joke, saying...